Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. This episode is a great follow-up to our last episode in which food historians Keith Stavely and Kathleen Fitzgerald shared with me traditional holiday recipes and ways of cooking from the 1600s to the 19th century. In this episode, Charles Lyle, executive director of the Webb Dean Stevens Museum in Wethersfield, tells us how the Webbs, the Deans, and the Stevens decorated their homes and set their tables for holidays in three eras. You've heard about the recipes. Now find out how to set your table and receive guests for a traditional Connecticut Christmas or New Year's celebration. This episode is sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal. My name is Charles Lyle. I'm executive director of the Webb Dean Stevens Museum. The Webb Dean Stevens House has been celebrating Christmas in sort of a big way for the last 11 years. I, I started as director here 12 years ago in December, so it was the second December I was here that we really sort of uh, started this this tradition of decorating all three houses to show really the history of the holiday, beginning in the 18th century, which is uh, where we interpret New Year's Day, actually, because Christmas wasn't celebrated in Connecticut in the 1770s. And then we uh, we moved to the Isaac Stevens house, and we celebrate Christmas in the 1840s, when Christmas was really starting to be a, a special holiday with special foods and with uh, lots of trimmings. And then we conclude at the Joseph Webb house, where we're interpreting Christmas in the late 1930s and 1940s, which is quite a change. So it's it's three centuries, roughly 100 years apart for each house. What we do at, at the Silas Dean House, where the tour starts, is we present Christmas Day as it would have been celebrated in 1770 when it was not a holiday. In fact, uh, the early records in Connecticut show that things like butchering and shop sales and other things were going on routinely. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't really marked or celebrated as, as a, a holiday. It wasn't until 1846 that Connecticut actually declared Christmas as, uh, as a holiday. At the, at the Dean House, we, we really talk about New Year's Day, which was the day that was a special celebration, particularly among the more prominent families in the community. It is uh, a time of the year and a day of the year when people would settle their debts, particularly, uh, you know, among the households that uh, where you have a merchant or somebody who uh, has some substance and has, you know, debtors out in the community. And they would arrive and they would either pay the debt off with, uh, with specie or, or money, or they would write a promissory note, which... Uh, is where the idea of resolution comes from, which uh, would have to be uh, agreed to and then paid off in the coming year with money, or he would pay it off with some kind of a service. He would he would maybe provide some of his crops in the spring, or he would provide meat, or he would do something like build a fence, or uh, 
even even could make a dress for uh, for Mrs. Mrs. Dean, but it would be settled with a written promissory note. This uh, ended up becoming a social holiday where uh, the women in the prominent households in the community and actually the clergy would hold an open house, which was called the New Year's Day Calling. It's actually still celebrated in places like Delaware. But uh, the tradition was that the gentlemen of the community would circulate among the wealthy households uh, where they might be settling some debts, but also these uh, these events would be hosted by the lady of the house. They would provide tea and uh, probably some wine and uh, rich cakes and desserts and, and good things to eat. The men would come in and pay their respects, and then they would go to the next house. The men tried to do as many households as they could, and uh, they could start as early as 10 o'clock in the morning. It was a, a, a real sign of respect and pride on both the part of the gentlemen in terms of who were circulating among the community and the ladies who were uh, receiving these, these important guests. Beginning last year, we've, we've started to really interpret in a bigger way the food that might have been served on New Year's Day. We've created a, a midday dinner in our dining parlor. And uh, one of the things that prompted it is that last year we received a major gift of 134 pieces of Chinese export porcelain from a, a, a donor and her daughters. It, uh, it's from a prominent family, the Dyer family of Rhode Island. Uh, there is a gilt D in the middle of the plates, which uh, could have been, you know, the kind of china that uh, Silas Dean might have actually had because uh, of his social level. So we're able to kind of give a, a not only a show how the menu was developed, but uh, we've we've set up the table for a soup course, which would have been typical during this period, where you would have start with an oyster soup, for instance, and then uh, when dinner started, you would have a variety of different meats. You would have chicken and ham and maybe roast beef, maybe even boiled pork, and then a variety of vegetables, and then you would go into a dessert course, which really featured minced pies, which were ground beef, usually in, in America. In England, they favored lamb. Currants and fruits and dried fruits and all kinds of spices. But in addition to the mince pie, the, the real one of the highlights was plum cakes or plum puddings, uh, which incorporated dried raisins and currants and spices into a really dense cake. The difference with these plum cakes and cakes today is that there were no leavening agents uh, during this period, which, when the batter is mixed, provide bubbles and create a much lighter cake. These are really dense cakes, and they, because they were relying on raisins and other things that were not that perishable, they would be made early and could last for a long time. And I, I think we've all had our experiences with fruitcake. It's, a, it's the same kind of principle. So after, after dealing with, with New Year's Day, we move down the street to the Isaac Stevens house, which was originally uh, built in 1788 by Isaac Stevens, who was a tanner. But we interpret it to the 1840s, which is when his son's widow married Captain Stephen Francis. And it was a happy household because they had four children and they were ranging in age from one until 12. 
this was a period when Christmas decorating and some of the Christmas traditions that we know today started. One of the major things we do in the front parlor is we have a tabletop Christmas tree. This was a Pennsylvania custom. They would cut the top of the tree because they wanted to preserve the rest of the tree for firewood. And they would put it on a tabletop. And the interesting thing is that these early trees, and the first one that we're aware of in America that was described in 1832 by Harriet Martineau. She, uh, she described it in America, visited, uh, and it was in a Boston home. And uh, she talks about the spectacle of this German Christmas tree that she experienced. And she said, the cook had broken her eggs carefully in the middle for some weeks past, that Charlie might have the shells for cups. And these cups were gilded and colored very prettily. We were all engaged in sticking on the last of the seven dozen of the wax tapers and in filling the gilded egg cups with comforts, lozenges, and barley sugar. The tree was the top of a young fir planted in a tub, which was ornamented with uh, evergreen, and there was not a twig which had not something sparkling upon it. I have little doubt that the Christmas tree will become one of the most flourishing exotics of New England. And indeed it did. What they would do usually, and the way we interpret the Stevens house, is that we show it at Christmas morning when the family had returned from church. And they would be dining in the dining room. The dining room is set up for a family Christmas dinner. They would be serving turkey and other special dishes, but turkey certainly being the centerpiece. And in the middle of the table is a pyramid with, uh, with both uh, lemons and apples. These were considered to be exotic fruits, particularly in December, and very rare and hard to come by because, uh, you know, most of the ships were quite slow, the merchant ships in those days, sailing ships, and they had to come by fast clipper ships, really, to get there in time before they spoiled. But the real highlight of uh, the Christmas pyramid was the pineapple which was the rarest and most exotic of all the fruits available to a family, particularly a wealthy family during this period. In fact, they were so rare and preserving them through uh, travel that they had to go through was so difficult that uh, in Boston, it's known that pineapples were even rented by hostesses and then returned after they made a, made a, a social point. But we have this the lemon and orange tree with the pineapple on top. And then we have uh, a number of desserts and we go back to the plum pudding again. And one of the really neat Christmas traditions from this period is that at the end of the meal, which was quite a feast, it became a ritual to uh, soak the plum pudding in rum or brandy and then inflame it with blue flames. So the lady of the household would present it to the family with these flames dancing above uh, uh, the plum pudding. And then when they cut into the plum pudding, they often had little silver charms in them, which made it sort of a game, a fun game. And they would remove the silver charms. A horseshoe meant good luck. If uh, you were unlucky enough to get a button, it meant that you were going to be a bachelor. And if, if you got a thimble, it meant that you would, uh, you would not be married uh, if you were a woman. 
and uh, an anchor meant safe harbor, and uh, a coin would mean that uh, wealth was in your future. It became sort of a fun game to end the meal. But then the real highlight occurred because the mother and father would decorate the Christmas tree, the tabletop Christmas tree, after the children went to bed or early in the morning. It would have been decorated mainly with food items. The tree would have had these eggshells, which we have on ours, hanging filled with candies, also cornucopias filled with candies. And then uh, there are gingerbread men and other edibles on the tree. It wasn't sparkling Christmas balls and icicles, that type of thing. It was, it was food. But they also had some homemade things like, like fans and, uh, and paper cutout to embellish the tree. But in those days, you know, we didn't have electric lights. So in 1840, these trees were illuminated by candles. And uh, we are lucky enough to find online a company that is supplying Christmas tree candles that look really like the real thing. So we're able to illuminate them as part of the tour. So you see what these trees might have looked like. What would have happened? The meal would end and they would, the door would be closed to the parlor where the Christmas tree was located. And the, they would open the door and the children would go in. This is a good spot to take a brief break. When we come back, Charles Lyle reveals the children's delight when the parlor doors are at last open to reveal the Christmas tree in all its glory. But first, I want to tell you about a brand new initiative by the Office of the State Historian and Connecticut Humanities. It's called Today in Connecticut History. Every day of the year at todayinctshistory.com, we tell you about a fascinating, often little-known event that happened on that very day in the past. Todayinctshistory.com provides an article, great images, and audio about the event from our daily WNPR broadcast. You can even subscribe to receive a morning email telling you what big event happened in this state on that date. This is your history, and it's worth knowing, and I hope you'll visit todayinctshistory.com soon. Todayinctshistory.com, because big things happen in this state on this date. And the, they would open the door, and the children would go in, and to their delight, the Christmas tree would be illuminated, and they would be able to actually get on a chair and for the high items or anything that they could pick off the tree and have all of these sweets and goodies. Also, it was during this period, uh, presents were not something that was, was given to everybody. It was just mainly the, the children were the, were the main focus. And it was just the beginning of when toys manufactured mainly in Germany were available for sale in local dry goods stores and locally. So they would get a few toys, nothing like today, in addition to the edibles. But in those days, an orange was just as exotic and just as wonderful as getting a, a toy soldier. There is a, a wonderful picture that was published in Boston in 1836, uh, four years after the description I read earlier, that shows children rushing in to the Christmas tree with, uh, with all of these toy soldiers and presents underneath and the edibles on the tree and the candles burning. 
Another really important thing that was published, and you can see in the 1840s, things are starting to evolve in terms of decorations. But one of the biggest influences was a picture that was published in 1848 in London of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert with their children around a tabletop Christmas tree in Windsor Castle. This was really important because the tree is decorated with glass ornaments, colored ornaments, made in Germany because uh, Albert came from Germany. So it was part of a custom that he was used to as a German. It was the kind of thing that had never really been seen in England or America. It was published in Les Leslie's two years later in 1850, and it became a rage for decorations. And it actually was a folk industry, a, a craft industry. The glass blowers in Germany and their whole family would be involved. They, they weren't just doing balls, but they were blowing glass into a mold and uh, making all kinds of things like birds and Santa Clauses and all kinds of forms like we know today. And then their family would paint them and they would put them together. F.W. Woolworth is the one from America who went to Germany in the 1880s, early 90s, on a buying trip and discovered these glass blowers and ended up importing thousands of them. At, uh, at this period, he had a thousand nickel and 10 cent stores nationwide, and he would sell them for between five cents and 10 cents, and they became a rage. German toys and German ornaments were really what defined Christmas, but then World War I came along in 1914. Obviously, we weren't able to really trade with the Germans during this period of war. The whole business of ornaments dried up, and by 1916, there weren't any ornaments around and people weren't able to decorate Christmas trees. But when the war ended in 1918, the German ornaments again became very popular, and also Japan got into the business. But it looked like we were going to end up in another world war in the 1930s with the rise of Hitler. And in 1937, F.W. Woolworth approached the Corning Company, the Corning Glass Company, and they reconverted their light bulb factory into a factory that produced Christmas ornaments. And they weren't as great as what the Germans were doing, but they, uh, they ended up being sold in the Woolworth stores. On the second floor of the Stevens house, I think we've done something that, to me at least, is really special. And that's that we've uh, produced a special exhibition on the Clement Moore poem, was the night before Christmas and on Thomas Nast and his illustrations. The museum owns a wonderful colored lithograph copy of the poem with illustrations by Thomas Nast, published by McLaughlin Company in New York, dating to 1888. It's just filled with these wonderful illustrations. And what we did is we blew them up and they're part of this exhibition in this one gallery. In doing the exhibition, I really learned a lot and uh, was, was very charmed by it. Clement Moore was, he was a professor of Oriental and Greek literature and a, a religious academician who came from a pretty wealthy family. He lived in the Upper West Side in New York. In 1822, he wrote the poem for his two daughters, Margaret and Charity. And according to legend, 
a visit of St. Nicholas, or today better known as Twas the Night Before Christmas, was conceived by Moore while riding in his sleigh on a snowy Christmas Eve in New York City. As he made his way down the avenue in the crisp winter air, other sleighs passed him by by accompanied by the sound of jingling bells and the snorting and stomping of horses. You can sort of visualize that. And with these images in mind, the author came home and he sat down and he wrote the poem, which he read after dinner that night to his children's delight. But he originally, because he was an academician, didn't intend to publish the poem. He also was, I think, a little embarrassed as a reputed professor, you know, being responsible for something like this. But the poem ended up uh, being shared with a friend of his, and it was uh, published in Troy, New York, in the Sentinel, a newspaper, on December 23rd, 1823. But it was published anonymously, so nobody knew that so Clement Moore didn't get credit for it. And it wasn't until 1837 that the, the poem was first attributed to Moore. But what is so important about this poem, in addition to the Christmas tree and all of the other layers of things that we're talking about, the mid-1830s through the 1840s, this is when, you know, when it all started. He's largely responsible for the image of uh, Santa Claus that we have today. Prior to the publication of his poem, America thought about St. Nicholas as somebody who was much more serious and of a religious nature. But his description was of a chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf with a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. And uh, this established the iconic image of Santa that has remained popular through the present day. It also, the famous poem, did much to establish the magic of Christmas Eve, the anticipation of the visit of St. Nick. His children were nestled all snug in their beds. And for the first time, St. Nicholas is portrayed riding in an airborne sleigh pulled by eight reindeer, all of which had names. After he lands his sleigh on the rooftop, he enters the house through a chimney carrying a bag full of toys. He chuckles to himself while filling the children's Christmas stockings hanging by the fire, and then he bounds up the chimney and flies off into the moonlight. And, you know, the charm of that poem is is really so important. But there was not a real visual image of Santa Claus that was uh, developed until Thomas Nast, who's the famous cartoonist, from Harper's Weekly got involved in the early uh, 1860s, so quite a bit later. Thomas Nast is, is I think, probably the most important uh, graphic artist in America, American history in some respects, because he created the concept of the Republican elephant and the Democratic donkey. He devised the Tammany Tiger, and he contributed to the popular image of, of Uncle Sam as we know him today. And uh, he first depicted Santa Claus in a, in a soldier's camp, Santa in camp, which was in Harper's Weekly in January 1863. And it shows him dressed in stars and stripes, distributing presents to uh, Union soldiers. And it also shows him as a rather thin Santa Claus, this first image. But over the next 24 years, Nass created a series of 76 Christmas engravings which were black and white engravings for Harper's Weekly. And as the series progressed, Santa became more and more portly and grew to the full white beard that has become, you know, part of the irresistible image of Santa Claus that we have today. His most famous image was uh, was done in 1881 
which is entitled Merry Old Santa Claus, which has become sort of the official portrait of Santa Claus. But the interesting thing about Thomas Nast is that he, he took more as the source of his inspiration when it came to Santa Claus, but he expanded the image and knowledge about Santa Claus, with, uh, particularly with an engraving called Santa Claus and His Works. And uh, what he does is he presents an account of Santa's life in the North Pole. The North Pole is, is Nast's invention, not Moore's. And Nast shows Santa using a telescope to locate good and bad children worldwide in this illustration, which has all of these little inserts. In another illustration, he's busy recording their behavior in an enormous account book. And, uh, you know, you get a lump of coal or you get an orange. And prior to his engravings, all children received gifts from Santa, but Nas conceived the idea of rewarding the nice children and punishing the naughty ones. He also showed Santa in his workshop making toys with hand tools using no machinery. Resting in a rocking chair in front of the fireplace, using a ladder to decorate a Christmas tree, and sewing doll clothing by hand rather than by a sewing machine. And he also, in an engraving that was published in 1879, it's called A Christmas Post. He shows a young girl putting a letter into a mailbox, and all it says is Santa Claus North Pole which starts another big tradition that we uh, all know uh, related to Christmas. Nast moved to Morristown, New Jersey in 1872, and he uh, frequently used the town for his Christmas drawings, including the spires of churches and stuff. He uh, had a, a, a major family life with a, with a wife and five children. He used the children and his wife often as models. He left Harper's Bazaar, which was, again, black and white engravings, in 1886, and he ended up illustrating over 110 Christmas books, including that 1888 version of the, the poem that, that we have on, on view in the exhibit. What he did is, he, uh, he, based on his earlier engravings, he started to do oil paintings. So Santa Claus, in his red suit became legitimized, or let's say became the image that we all have of, of, of Santa Claus, thanks to Thomas Nast. I think this exhibit is, is, is fun and it's, it's, it's informative. And then across the hall, we have a toy exhibit, which includes a number of early German toys, which are, are fun, too, to, to see as part of your visit. I must say, on the second floor, we also have the children's bedroom. The stockings are on the bed with oranges in the toe and toys coming uh, out of the, the stockings. It's kind of a, a good representation of what life was like during that period. Okay, we've gone through two centuries of Christmas. Now we go to the middle building, which is the Joseph Webb House, which dates to 1752. And it was also the headquarters for George Washington in 1781 and where he met French General Rochambeau to began plans for what ended up being the American victory at Yorktown about six or eight months later. And it's important for that reason. But it also was a house that was owned by Wallace Nutting beginning in 1916. And Wallace Nutting did a number of his popular pictures, hand-tinted pictures, using the house as a backdrop. The first floor we interpret to that 1916 through the 20s period. And what we have chosen to do in the in the web house is to interpret Christmas to really 
the post-prohibition period, when you get into the late 1930s and 40s before World War II, after World War I, that's when you have Christmas trees decorated again with German painted ornaments and American painted ornaments. You can still see them in antique shops, and we've been collecting them. And then we have the bigger lights, colored lights that would have been so popular in the period, and roping and all kinds of foods and things related to an open house celebration as it might have appeared in the uh, early 1940s. We also have a, a special toy exhibition of iron toys, uh, which is under a Christmas tree on the second floor at, at the Webb House. So our Christmas covers three centuries, and I think what makes the Webb Dean Stevens Museum different than a lot of other museums is that we stick to the documents and we're sticking to history. Yes, we embellish a little bit. We Everybody does. But it's not like we're trying to do something that doesn't directly relate to our mission as a history museum. We're trying to give people a, a grounding on the development of, of Christmas in America and the traditions that go with it. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Charles Lyle and the Webb Dean Stevens Museum. Find out more about visiting the museum during the holiday season at web-dean-stevens.org and re-listen to our earlier holiday podcast, Episode 21, A Connecticut Christmas Story by Harriet Beecher Stowe, and learn more about the Webb Dean Stevens Museum in one of our most popular episodes, Episode 11. The new winter issue of Connecticut Explored has surprising stories about Connecticut's creative history, including stories about artists Annie and Joseph Albers in New Haven, the phenomenon of octagon-shaped houses, Connecticut's early hip-hop history, and more. Subscribe now and get six issues for the price of four at ctexplore.org subscribe. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their action. More at Bowman.legal. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Thank you.